and welcome to Pod the Conversation by Wellesley Active Minds. I'm Maddie, and in this episode, as part of Love Your Body Week, we are going to talk about eating disorders with a special guest, Dr. Nancy Zucker. This topic is pretty personal for me, as I've suffered from eating disorders and live in recovery every day. I'm hoping that this show will connect to people like myself, but will also teach peers what to watch out for, how to have a positive body image, and to dispel any misconceptions about eating disorders. They are not just about weight loss. They are a mental illness. There will be some serious topics discussed in this episode. Warnings include mention of weight loss, binge eating, depression, discussion of other things relating to eating disorders. Please be advised. There's a common misconception that eating disorders are a choice, that someone can control them. In actuality, there are illnesses where people experience severe eating behaviors impacting their mental health, thoughts, and emotions. The three most common types are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. Just a quick overview of what each are. Anorexia nervosa is when someone is at least 15% under normal body weight for their height. It's characterized by limited food intake, a compulsive fear of being overweight, denial of body weight, and a negative body image. Eating disorders are unique mental illnesses since symptoms can be both mental and physical as your body grapples with malnutrition. Some common symptoms include, for those assigned female at birth, seizing of menstrual periods, anemia, muscle degradation, and drops in blood pressure. Depression and anxiety are often paired with EDs, either as symptoms or controlled eating may be a coping mechanism for those conditions. Having an eating disorder doesn't always mean you're underweight. Someone could suffer from bulimia or binge eating or experience symptoms of anorexia while maintaining normal body weight or being overweight. In fact, eating disorders often are underdiagnosed in individuals who are overweight and develop unhealthy eating attempting to lose weight. Both bulimia nervosa and binge eating are characterized by stuffing or overeating. The difference in the medically diagnoses are with bulimia, an individual may attempt to counteract their large consumption of food by inducing vomiting or fasting. These diagnoses are not always so clean cut. If you suffer from one type of ED, you're more likely to develop symptoms of another. For example, I've experienced behaviors relating to all three. Millions of people suffer from eating disorders at any given time. It can affect people of all ages, racial and ethnic backgrounds, body weights, and genders. Though according to the National Eating Disorders Association, or NIDA, most begin between 18 and 21 years of age. And while both men and women can suffer, it's more common in females. Research is finding that EDs are caused by complex interaction of genetic, biological, behavioral, psychological, and social factors. If you check out our episode on body image in the media, you can see many people develop unhealthy expectations of beauty, which may lead to unhealthy weight loss habits. We're learning more and more that genetics may give individuals predisposition to mental illnesses. You may also engage in activities which increase your likelihood of developing an eating disorder. Sports where body size plays an important role, like figure skating or gymnastics, are a good example. There are a lot of factors which led to me personally developing an eating disorder. For one, several of my family members have had EDs. And I grew up figure skating, even though I was the wrong body shape, being tall and lanky compared to my small and nimble competitors. It led me to becoming insecure about my body, how my muscly thighs were larger than the boys at school. I remember seeing an episode of Full House, where DJ decides to skip meals for three days to lose weight. The episode ends with the moral being that this is a bad habit, but I still saw that, and my solution to insecurities became clear, as long as I didn't let it get too far. I was about 14 when I first got my ED, which is fairly young, though they can occur in children and teenagers. It's really during college when young women are at highest risk. The challenges of college life of increased workload, less structure, and more focus on peers can collide with anxieties, 
learning issues, or poor self-esteem. Someone who can manage stress and stay afloat during high school with a lot of hard work and support from their parents might find themselves drowning in confusion and complicated world of college. Eating disorders develop when the need to feel control over a stressful environment is channeled through food restriction, over-exercise, and an unhealthy focus on body weight. Nita estimates that between 10 and 20% of women and 4 to 10% of men in college suffer from an eating disorder, and the rates are on the rise. An eating disorder is diagnosed with these behaviors are sustained over time, and when they become dangerous, all-consuming, and unmanageable. When trying to determine if habits are simply disordered eating or something more serious, you'd have to know to what extent does the eating, weight, shape, and body image concerns really start to dominate your thoughts. For example, you may decide not to go to a party because you're too worried about your weight, or you can't enjoy beach activities because you're too afraid of being seen in a bathing suit. If someone is starting to withdraw from normal activities because of these anxieties of weight, eating, or shape, it would be cause for concern. I should reiterate that no one sets out to get an eating disorder. Someone may just want to lose weight or gain confidence in their body, which is what happened to me. Managing your food can mean active self-control when the rest of life feels unpredictable. Regardless of the motivations, eating disorders can be all-consuming of your body and mind, and if left untreated, can cause permanent bodily harm. This is why seeking treatment is so important and recovery is possible. Treatment may include psychotherapy, nutritional counseling, medications, and in extreme cases, hospitalization or inpatient care. I was just shy of ever getting hospitalized for my eating disorder, but I did begin seeing a nutritionist, a therapist, and got medication for my depression and anxiety. Though even with this care, it did take me years to fully recover, and I still sometimes struggle with my eating and body image. So now I know I have a support network and coping strategies to keep me from respiraling into where I was. One of the people who played a significant role in my recovery is actually our guest for the episode. Dr. Nancy Zucker is an associate professor in psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University and is the founder slash director of the Duke Center for Eating Disorders. She was also my therapist for two years. So why don't you go ahead, um, if you'd like to introduce yourself, what your position is at Duke and uh, some of the research that you do with eating disorders. So um, my name is uh, um, Dr. Nancy Zucker, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University, and I direct the Duke Center for Eating Disorders. How long has the center been open? It has been open since 2002. So what do you guys uh, specialize in? We specialize in treating um, eating disorders across the lifespan. So we treat kids from the age of three and up. And we're probably most known for our work with young children. Um, we're helping them on kind of body awareness and comfortable and comfort with eating. We treat all forms of eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, ARFID, binge eating disorder, and all the, the variations in between. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons that we met is that you were uh, my therapist for related things for several years. I'm just wondering, um, in your work, have you noticed any like common behaviors or warning signs with people uh, who suffer from an eating disorder? Yeah, I mean, so I, th- I think that, you know, one of the, um, you know, it's, it's always hard for us to kind of have any, um, to define risk factors for people who will become vulnerable to get an eating disorder but I, I would say that one thing that is consistent is that people as, as children, right, are kind of high in anxiety, 
can be um, high in perfectionism, right? In terms of just being very like, you know, hardworking and driven, although none of those are, none of those are what we call specific risk factors, right? So being anxious and being perfectionistic is a risk factor for lots of different things, right? Depression, you know, worse anxiety, all those kinds of things in addition to an eating disorder. And so um, the, the thing that I um, focus on in my research are kids who had an early life event that I think would make them distrusting of their bodies or a little bit wary of their body, like kids who have early pain or early medical events, things that just make them a, a little bit more body focused, right? Because of the nature of just having to manage symptoms and this, that, and the other, and also that their body is somehow not working the way it should, or there's something wrong with their bodies. And so this kind of like undercurrent of, of distrust that I think is kind of a, is a vulnerability for, for eating disorders, right? If you're kind of starting off life already thinking that your body is somehow vulnerable or, or weak. Yeah, I absolutely. I feel like eating disorders kind of have a cyclical nature of having negative body issues, developing an eating disorder, and then just having yeah. that go yeah. and go. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's, I agree with that entirely. Have you noticed um, in your work, like if you tell people that you study eating disorders, um, are there any like misconceptions that you've identified? Yeah, I actually think that eating disorders are some of the most poorly misunderstood disorders among all the psychiatric disorders, because I think that people conceptual who don't understand eating disorders conceptualize them as individuals who are just very concerned with their weight and shape. Um, and so just overly care about appearance, which makes eating disorders sound like they're disorders of vanity. And so that and no one would, you know, anyone who struggles with an eating disorder, if you thought that that's what people thought, would feel comfortable taking on, you know, saying that they have an eating disorder because who wants to be thought of as, as vain? And when you really understand what eating disorders are, is you really understand that they're really disorders of the self, right? People who really struggle to trust themselves, to trust their body, to be able to prioritize taking care of themselves and their body in the space of pleasing other people or failing or, or all these other things. And so that the symptoms are really just a symbol of pl applying a bunch of rules to oneself in an effort to try to cope as opposed to being concerned about being a certain weight or this, that, and the other. Like that's like the facade or the kind of the covering underneath all the different kind of the layers of meaning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I feel like also eating disorders is primarily seen as like, uh, like a female disorder, which is right. not at all correct. <laughs> not at all correct. And that, and that misconception, unfortunately, it's like a vicious cycle, right? It's because mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, people who identify as male, right, are, are going to be less likely to seek treatment, right? Because they're afraid, okay, this is not only, a, you know, my presenting for psychiatric, you know, a psychiatric disorder, which has its own stigma, but it's a, a female dominated psychiatric disorder. So I can't get treatment about that. And so then it perpetuates the myth that males don't get eating disorders and, and, and on and on it goes. Yeah. So I'm not going to ask you like how people with eating disorders should get treatment. It's a very individualized process in a lot of ways, but what do you think are good ways for people to work on promoting a positive body image for themselves? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the, the things that we, that we really focus on is this, this construct of, of self-parenting, that, that it really is about, you know, so, so someone who is, is kind of has, is stable with themselves, has kind of a self-image that is constant, 
right? So like as one goes throughout the day, you kind of have this like this core self that is stable and, you know, you get a bad grade, you have a disappointing interaction with a friend, you know, all these things happen, but your core sense of self, it's not like you're like, I love myself. I hate myself. I love myself. I hate myself. That's stable. Just like I am, you know, I like myself and I just had a fight with my friend or I like myself and I just overate at breakfast kind of thing. And so, so what self-parenting is about saying that, that actually having a positive body image is about trusting yourself and it's about knowing yourself and that trusting and knowing yourself is about being able to kind of tune into your body, figuring out what your body, like trusting that what your body is communicating is right and worthy of responding to and that responding to it is will make you know yourself better. So when I'm hungry, like you're hungry, it's not your body tricking you or there's not some problem with your hunger. It's telling you that you're hungry and that you should go get some food and eat, right? When your body's telling you you're tired, it's not a sign that you're lazy or you haven't worked hard enough. It's a sign that you're tired, right? And that you should go to bed, you know? And so really kind of taking away all the, the beliefs that, that get in the way of just really being true to, to one's body and trusting that our body has our best interests at heart and, and making ourselves more partners with our bodies rather than enemies. Yeah. If that makes That's, No, absolutely. Um, <laughs> You, yeah, you've definitely uh, shared similar things with me in the past, and I've I found it helpful. I also wondering, do you think um, people entering college or in a college setting where they're independent and managing their eating for the first time that can make them particularly vulnerable to developing an eating disorder? Yeah, it's it's one of the most kind of vulnerable periods eating disorders to kind of emerge for exactly the the re, you know for lots of different reasons right there's all these challenging stressors one you know sometimes the you know someone has these biological vulnerabilities and the college environment is kind of the perfect trigger right in terms of stress right in terms of schedule in terms of peers role modeling good or bad eating habits right so someone who's already kind of predisposed to be vulnerable has all these additional press pressures that could get in the way um, of it. And, you know, and, and also just sometimes the college schedule, right? People who don't prioritize their, their self-care, sometimes college schedules, you have to fight for regular meals, right? Like you actually, right. Have to plan, right. You have to bring food along, you know, like you have to be very intentional about it. Right. And so it's very easy for someone to very unintentionally just kind of passively um, lose weight or not take care of themselves because of, of circumstance and then get hooked, right? In terms of just like, oh, I've just lost this weight. Now I don't want to gain it back. And now I'm afraid of getting it back. So let me overcompensate or, or not eating all day. And so when you finally eat at night, being so starving, it's hard to stop. And then feeling guilty about it and engage in binge eat. You know, so there's all these different ways college can, can interfere with healthy, regular eating. Yeah. Is there any advice you would give to, um, peers or friends who on how to talk to someone who's like struggling with an eating disorder or recovering from one because I feel um, part of what uh, Active Minds at my mental health club on campus uh, focuses on is like talking about your uh, mental illnesses with others. Yeah I would say you know one of the things that that I always shy away from well well, it's kind of like a two-part process one is that when someone is worried about um, a friend with an eating disorder I always tell them first to look in the mirror and say okay right as 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 a support person you know someone who is around this person am I acting as a support person like you know how am I doing taking care of myself right you know what is what you know like would eating around me 
you know, be a good model for my friend of what healthy eating looks like and this, that, and the other, and really just kind of like for, you know, first kind of like clean your own house, right? You know, in, in terms of that sort of thing. And then the second part is to, to focus more on the, the emotional part and the loneliness part than on the, the eating behaviors, right? The eating behaviors um, are what keeps someone with an eating disorder safe and frozen and distracted, right? And so those are the ones that are defended, right? Because they're their ways of coping. And the ones that really get at the heart of the suffering are the fact that they've been, become more isolated, right? That they're, they're depressed, right? They're you know, increasingly disconnected from peer, like, and all those kinds of things. And that's what friends notice, right? And so saying things like, you know, I miss you, you know, it seems like you're kind of more, you know, you're so overwhelmed, you know, you're so kind of set in your routine. I don't get to see you anymore. And, you know, and, and it just seems like you're really sad and go with, you know, like, if you want to go talk to someone, I'd be happy to keep you company and wait in the waiting room or, you know, like, hold your, you know, do, you know, have to support you in whatever way to help you get help. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice. I, I guess I have one more question. And this is more just kind of me being curious. Do you think um, COVID-19 has impacted anyone suffering from an eating disorder or mental illness in like their behavior? Yeah, I think that, you know, like, I think it could go in like in two very different ways. And I've seen it go in two different ways, you know, for, and and one way it could be really positive, right. In the sense that like, this is a, so this is a disease that preys on people, you know, on everyone, right. But particularly people with, you know, impoverished immune systems and who are like, if you're if you started off kind of unhealthy, right? The if you get COVID, right, the risk that something you know that you'll have a really rough time is increased, right? As opposed to someone who um, doesn't have whatever biological vulnerability, right, interacts with COVID. And so, on on one hand, it's kind of like I you know wake up call, right? In terms of like wow, you know like there's there, there, like there are deadly consequences, right? To not taking care of myself, right? There's obviously very healthy people that die from COVID, but what, <clears throat> do I really want to roll the dice and not do everything I can to, uh, to take care of myself in this time when this deadly, you know, thing is kind of taking over? And so as a way to kind of, you know, kind of catapult people to really address their eating disorder symptoms, Right. And then the fact that someone's, you know, COVID is a social disease, right. And that we've all got to do our part, to, you know, keep each other safe. Right. And so when someone is making decisions that increase their own vulnerability to get sick, it has consequences, not only for you, for you, but for everyone who touches you. Right. And so that there's this kind of added, like for someone with an eating disorder, it's very hard sometimes to make to do things for their own self, but some this COVID's kind of a weird opportunity to say like, you know what, I don't want to risk the health of my family by the fact that I'm, you know, that I'm vulnerable, right? And so can I do this for that, you know, for that? And so, so that's the, that's the good that for some people that will be meaning making in terms of um, being able to get treatment or whatever. And then for others, right, if for someone who's in the throes of their disorder, right, it's, um, and who is still using symptoms to try to, um, or even just like creeping towards recovery, right? But still relying on um, symptoms, you know, less symptoms, but still some symptoms, you know, rituals and routines to try to manage anxiety and manage stress, right? All those, of course, are just like thrown out the window, right? As everyone kind of change routines and develop new strategies and, and those kinds of things. And so, 
you could, and then just scariness of, right? Just the world that we're in, right? So. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely changing a lot of things. Um, yeah, all so right, that well, was a really long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a complicated question. Um, yeah, well, uh, I appreciate so much uh, you giving me your time. I know you're very busy. Is there um, anything you'd like to add that I failed to bring up about um, eating disorders or something you'd like people to know? Let me think. Any parting words of wisdom? No, you know, I just, you know, um, I, I wish that when people, you know, when they look in the mirror, they would look, look themselves in the eyes, right, and kind of and see their, the person that is, that is in there, right, rather than, you know, objectifying the features, right, in the body shape. And I think that 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 simple gesture symbolizes a, a, a huge shift in how people interact with themselves. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, one of the uh, advices I give to people now when they're um, looking for a therapist is make sure you find someone who can call you on your uh, bullshit. And that's definitely was inspired by you. Um, <laughs> once again, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I hope this episode has taught you more about eating disorders and how to take care of your body. I want to thank once again, Dr. Nancy Zucker for joining us today. If you're currently suffering from an eating disorder, please reach out to the NIDA hotline 800-931-2237 and the National Suicide Hotline is 800-273-8255. For more information about eating disorders or Love Your Body Week as a whole, please check out the links in the episode description. Thank you for listening. Together, we can help change the conversation of mental health.